Good morning, everyone. Could I please call this meeting to attention? Thank you. I'm going to read uh, today's scripture uh, from Ephesians 1, starting at verse 15, reading from NIV. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above the rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Kevin. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, great to see you this morning. It's great to be back up here for a change. Uh, I have not sp spoken in 2016 at the front here uh, on a Sunday morning. It's great to be back. And uh, we are wrapping up our series today uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We're really indebted. Uh, shout out to Graham for his uh, preaching work this last uh, five weeks or so. And Appreciate him, and Lincoln as well for his part, and uh, it may be just one chapter, just 23 short verses, but it's got to be. You, you got to notice that this is a pretty impressive 23 verses, jam-packed with this, uh, just bursting with hope and promise and goodness for us, and uh, it's amazing news. And as I was thinking about this, I uh, haven't been able to get one of my favorite films out of my head. Not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> One of my favorite films. Uh, it's a baseball film called Moneyball. And uh, I'm not much of a baseball fan, but I love baseball stories. So, I, I mean, baseball, seriously, it is like watching paint peel in, in terms of a sport. It's, it's just slightly beat by cricket, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, uh, and yet, baseball movies tend to be really good and really quite interesting, because I think they skip over the baseball parts. Um, <laughs> And uh, Moneyball was based at least loosely on the story of, of Billy Bean, uh, a former player who became general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And uh, it, it kind of covers their, their season, 2001-2002, uh, early 2000s. And in 2001, the team lost their three-star players, their best players, because they couldn't afford to re-sign them. They're the poorest team in the league, uh, salary-wise, lowest salary cap of anybody. And the story follows, the, follows this Bean character who, who uh, played by Brad Pitt, and they follow his, his kind of unorthodox approach to selecting new players to form this team. And it was radical, it was new, and it actually ended up changing how teams pick baseball players for good. Like, it, it, it impacted the whole league. And uh, their success, they actually that year, it looks like it's going to be really, really bad, but it ends up being really, really good. They have this long winning streak, but they don't win the final games. They don't get to the World Series. A lot of disappointment. 
and, and Billy Bean, in spite of all that he'd accomplished that year in sort of changing baseball, he's devastated, and he feels kind of like a loser. He's walking around with his head, head hung low. The scene I want to show you is at the end of the film. In my mind, it's the best scene in the film. Bean's assistant manager tries to give Bean some perspective by showing him a video clip from a recent baseball game. Let's watch the clip. Come with me to the video room. I want to show you something. No, man, I'm not for film right now. Come on. Seriously. Come on, Billy. Come on. The Visalia Oaks and our 240-pound catcher, Jeremy Brown, who, as you know, is scared to run to second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's going to start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's going to take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting. Because Jeremy's going to do what he never does. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first, and he's going to go for it. Okay? This is all of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it. How can you not be romantic about baseball? It's a metaphor. I know it's a metaphor. <laughs> okay. Pete, you're good egg. I, uh, maybe you have to watch the rest of the film to be inspired by that clip, but I love that scene. And, and that guy hit a home run. He's kind of a frumpy guy. It uh, doesn't look like he's, he's had, been used to that kind of success, but he hits it over the fence. And Pete's trying to say to Billy, you hit a home run. You changed baseball forever. You know, you're walking around with your head down as if you've been beat. And, and when I, I remember when I saw that scene years ago, I immediately thought that, that maybe we're a lot like that as Christians. We can, we can sometimes be like that player. A home run has been hit. In fact, the ball game has been won, but we sometimes walk around with our heads down, feeling like we're losers. And the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians is telling us that in Jesus, we've won the whole World Series. We've won the whole, whole match. Our defining story is now the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Um, David Wood, this last Wednesday in our class, uh, Christ and Culture, uh, in his talk on being slaves, how, how society wants to make us its slave, he quoted Alistair McIntyre, who put it this way. He said, I can only answer the question, 
what am I to do if I, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? In other words, our de- defining stories shape how we're going to live, what we're going to do with our lives. What is our defining story? And the Apostle Paul in this, this first chapter of Ephesians, in this letter to these relatively new Christians in Ephesus, he's trying to tell them in every way that he knows how that as followers of Jesus, they've won. They've got a, a new defining story. We, we know that they're not slaves anymore. Rather, they are, are sons and daughter of the Most High King. They are royalty, princes and princesses. They're saints, God's holy people. And they're, they're promised a, a, a simply glorious inheritance in Jesus. It, it says literally, they've been assured of every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And so Paul uh, uses all this wonderful language to, to remind these new Christians of who they are. But I think for, for, for us and for the Ephesians too, uh, the thing is we have all these kind of competing stories and, and conflicting stories going on that we bump into in our lives. We some, they're, not, they're not always congruent with one another. And, and these stories, they try to shape us and form us and they try to conform us into their mold. He knows that, that we can easily become blinded to the power and the wonder and the beauty of, of what Jesus has done and who we are in him. And so what does Paul do? He prays. He prays. Uh, as we heard last week, Paul prayed for four things for those believers. I think he prays those four things for us. He was thinking forward. He prayed that they would know God. He, he prayed that they would know hope, <laughs> overflow with hope. He prayed that they would know their standing, their strong standing in Jesus, and that they would know power. He prayed for power. This power of God is, is presented here as being incomparably great. Well, what does that mean? It means there is no other power like it. It's unparalleled, it's, it's unmatched, it's uncomparable, incomparable. And Paul can barely kind of get out the words when he's describing this power. He, he strings together all the synonyms he can find to describe this. This, this power, the Greek word is, is dynamis, is the word we, we get for, for dynamite. He's talking about this explosive power is like the working of his mighty strength or according to the operation of the strength of his might. And amazingly, we are told that this power is is directed towards and is available to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those in on this Jesus story. Isn't that awesome? Thank you. I think we we ought to, like, amen. Preach it, brother. Come on. I'm just back in the saddle. I need to shake off the rust. This incomparable power did what? We're, we're told that it, he, this great power was exerted to do two things. Uh, it was the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Isn't that cool? It's the same power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, it exalted him to the highest place, to the throne above all thrones, a position of greatest power and, and might and glory and authority. Well, what do we do with this? I wanted to spend some time this morning kind of unpacking the, the greater context of, of, of what does this mean for us? How does this power, the fact that Jesus is 
the power to be reckoned with, how does that impact us, how we live? And to help us think about this, we're going to focus in on those two core verses at the end of this prayer for power. Verse 20 and 21, Paul's amazing and audacious claim that the crucified and risen Lord is sitting on the throne of the universe. Before we do, let's, uh, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Oh God, Lord Jesus, Paul tells us, we're told by him that you, you hit it out of the park, Lord, you, you won the ultimate victory and that we get to not just be spectators we don't just watch from afar what Jesus did. You, you, you invite us into that story. You, you invite us into that victory. And so we pray this morning you would give each of us fresh eyes with which to see. Open our, our hearts so that we might grasp our identity in Jesus and that we might learn how and what it means for how we're to live here and now in our lives. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, we, we kind of uh, aren't doing it quite right here. We don't, we're only taking one chapter of Ephesians, but if you were to re read the entire letter to the Ephesians, uh, you'll find as many New Testament scholars have observed that it's roughly divided into two halves, one to three, chapters one to three, and then chapters four through six. The turning point happens in chapter 4, in, in verse 1 there, where, it's, where Paul says, therefore, he says, therefore, after all you've heard in these three chapters, therefore, this is what you do about it, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You see, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul talks about and he prays about God's calling on our lives. And then in chapters 4 through, through 6, Paul shows us how to live God's call in our lives in the world. It's this dance that, that Graham has been talking about, that, uh, the, describing happening in this letter. In, in chapters 1 to 3, we have these kind of core beliefs of who we are in Jesus. In chapters 4 through 6, the, the behaviors that come out of those beliefs, and they're meant to be kind of a seamless dance as he's been describing. You might, might call it the is and the do, <laughs> To one more simply, in, in verse, chapters 1 to 3, we have uh, the good news. In chapters 4 through 6, you might call it the good advice. Very typical of Paul. You find this pattern in just about everything he wrote, where he starts with all this great stuff at the beginning, and then he tells you, well, what do you do about it? That, that's his pattern. And, and in, in fact, the same goes with Jesus. There's good news before good advice. Jesus always gives us the good news before he gives us the counsel of how to live. Why? Because the good news, the good advice, I should say, is impossible to live without the good news. <laughs> without the good news, good advice becomes kind of like life tips and self-help and DIY. Do it yourself, which in my case means do it badly or poorly. Hire a professional, right? Uh, you know, um, growing up, as I've, I've shared many times, I, I grew up in a pastor's home and and we have a support group here, again, as I've said, uh, for those of you who are PKs, pastor's kids. And, and uh, it's, not, it's not all bad. Um, but I got to go to church probably twice every Sunday, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I heard a lot of sermons growing up. And, and it, it was only when I was about 17 or 18 where the good news started to penetrate into my heart and my mind. Uh, a lot of what I grabbed from the, what the messages I heard was, felt like good advice 
This is, this is what you're, this is the ought. You ought to do this. this you ought to live this way. Yeah, you got to be this way. <laughs> you should. <laughs> and, and, and for me, it became a, more like religion than relationship with God. And uh, I, had to, I almost had to go through recovery to kind of get out of that. It was, it was saturated with good advice. Why does it matter? Well, because good advice by itself doesn't change anybody. Only a heavy dose of the good news can change someone. Uh, you know, um, Paul will go on to, to give actually a lot of good advice. It's, it's actually incredibly wise counsel on how to live. It's been inspired by God, for goodness sakes. Chapters 4 through 6 are, are a good read. He, 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 goes, he leads us through a, a whack of therefores. Therefore, walk worthy of your calling. Therefore, uh, be angry, but do not sin. Therefore, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Therefore, be imitators of God. Therefore, walk as children of the life, the light. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Therefore, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, stop lying to one another and speak the truth to one another. Therefore, submit to one another in love. And then in chapter 6, therefore, be strong in the Lord, put on the full armor of God. Uh, Graham unpacked the very first of the therefores last week where he told us that we're to love one another. That's what you find in, the, in, in chapter 4, verse 1. After he says, live, live a life worthy of your calling, he goes on to say, love one another. Be humble to one another. You know, bear with one another. Those kind of things. And this is Valentine's Day, and we're kind of celebrating a version of love. We're celebrating, I would say, romantic love today in our culture. But when we th think of love, certainly on a weekend like this, we often think of love as kind of a hole that we fall into. <laughs> I've fallen into love. <laughs> Whereas love, uh, as we've heard, uh, as Graham talked about last week, love is a choice. Biblical love is always talked about in terms of, of a choice, choosing to love. That all said, uh, 26 years ago, I actually did fall in love. I, I, I could honestly say I think it was love at first sight. I, I met Angel, and after two or three minutes of being with her, I walked away and said, I think I've met the woman I'm going to marry. And I married that girl, and I put a ring on her finger. She's single no longer. We've been married for 23 years, going on 24. And I still love you, dear. Truly, madly, deeply. Um, it's kind of funny, though. The falling in love part, I would say, only got us through the first few months, not even a year. Since then, it has required a relentless series of choices to love one another. Uh, let me give you an example. Last weekend, we went on a date. Uh, we uh, kind of did our Valentine's last weekend. We had some things on this weekend, and, and quite honestly, uh, uh, Valentine's weekends or Valentine's Day is like the worst day to go on a date, really. I mean, you got all this cultural pressure. My, theory, my advice, guys, is date throughout the year. Evenly spread it over 12 months. It works so much better. That's my thought. Um, amen. Preach it. Well, so we went on a date, which we do fairly regularly. We're, we're in a restaurant uh, seeking to nourish and grow our relationship, and we're talking, and you know what they say, talking where it leads. Well, it didn't lead there. <laughs> Talking led to an argument, <laughs> actually a fairly significant argument. It was one of our most spectacular fights ever, and yet we're in a public place, so it's like we're yelling at each other with lowered voices. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. It was, uh, it was a doozy. In fact, one of us almost walked home. It was that bad. 
Uh, so if, uh, yeah, if your image of a pastor is that they never fight with their spouse, well, sorry, go find another pastor. <laughs> and what we have found is that choosing to love for us doesn't mean just choosing to be romantic. It means choosing to be humble. It means choosing to forgive. It means choosing to uh, talk things out and to bear with one another's faults and to keep on carrying on even when it's difficult. And, uh, you know, as the guy said this morning, you, you go through some of the vinegar and you get the honey. But it's choice, choice-based love. And all the therefores in this passage uh, have a lot to do with actually how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we treat other people, and those kind of things. And they're truly good counsel on how to live. But here's the thing, they only make sense in light of the good news. I mean, the therefores of four to six are impossible to live unless we know and believe the good news. You know, but before we can do any of that good advice, we have to be gripped by, we have to be, be, be changed by, we have to be captured by the good news. So as I said, in, in the heart of all this good news that, that Paul writes and prays in chapters one to three, he prays two great prayers. The one that we've read this morning and the one at the end of chapter three that I'd encourage you to look at, it's, they're, they're two of the best prayers in, the, in scripture let me, let me just reread uh, parts of the prayer that we're looking at this morning. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, word for saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named or invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, the one verse we left out, it reminds us that the burden here of Paul's prayer is that we would know God, that we might come to know this God who came into the world as Jesus, and that we might know Jesus as, as the one who God has installed as emperor of the universe, the one who is Lord over everything, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. By the way, this is really the fulfillment of two Psalms, uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and they're the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. And God says in, in Psalm 2, he says, I have installed my king on, on Zion, my holy mountain. And then in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. These were all fulfilled in Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. God has installed Jesus on the throne. I say the throne that is above all thrones. So, so why does Paul pray that we would know this power? Well, as we said, it's the power to actually live his gospel, God's gospel in the world. It's the power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that put Jesus on the throne. It's the power that put everything under Jesus' feet. It's the power that put Jesus as the head over everything, including the church. Now, now focus on the phrase, seated above every power, uh, far above all rule and authority. 
this is the, the good news that makes this good advice possible to live. Scholar Timothy Coombs put it this way. He said this, the basic thrust of Paul's story is that God has defeated the fallen powers and authorities in Christ Jesus and has installed Christ Jesus as cosmic ruler over all reality. Talk about a title. I mean, we can be tempted to just uh, have a real limited view of Jesus, I think, sometimes. We think of him as the good shepherd and, and, and healer and friend of sinners and, and how about this for a title? Not, not Jesus Christ superstar, but Jesus Christ cosmic ruler over all reality. I love that. And Coombs goes on to talk about the implications of this for the church. He says, God is manifesting his victory over the powers by creating the church in which he is overcoming the effects of evil powers in the world. How's that for what, the, what? How does that change our view of what goes on here at 1393 Austin Avenue? Now, what I find uh, kind of remarkable about all of this is that Paul teaches this and speaks about these truths and prays this prayer in less than ideal circumstances. He's in prison. He's waiting to be tried by Caesar. And in that day, Caesar was the one who was calling himself Lord. I mean, Caesar was the one that, that was demanding that, that citizens in the Roman Empire acknowledge him as, as Lord and, and worshipped him. Really, in that day, you could have your own private religion. It was kind of like anything goes in private. You could do whatever you wanted. But as long as publicly and regularly you would say the words, you'd speak the words, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. And of course, disciples of Jesus couldn't do this. I mean, respect Caesar, yes. Work with Caesar, sure. Pray for Caesar, absolutely. But confess him as Lord? No way, because it's not true. He's just emperor. He's not, he's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Exalted, raised up, says Paul, far above all rule and, and authority, power and dominion and every name that is named. I mean, what does that mean? Again, I love how, how David quoted Abraham Cooper on, on Wednesday night. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So who are these powers and authorities that Paul is talking about? Well, these terms could refer to human beings, um, human powers, and, and human authorities. But they were also used to refer to extra-human rulers or, or authorities and dominions. Paul would go on to use the same words in, in, Psalm, er, in Ephesians 6, saying that our struggle against the powers in this world is not against flesh and blood, not against humans, but against the, the authorities, against the, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And we know from Scripture that, and, and from Jesus' teaching, that there are actual spiritual authorities and powers at loose in our world. Jesus specifically names them. He warned us about the devil and about Satan and about the accuser. Uh, he would go on and warn us of other spiritual powers that seem to inhabit Seemingly innocent objects, like what? Money. Mammon, he called it. He named it mammon. And we, we see these, these powers expressed in all kinds of ways. Sometimes in institutions, 
sometimes in, in government, sometimes through ideologies or social structures. Uh, some of the powers, I think, could be the defining stories of our day that people hold very dear. Um, it doesn't take much reflection to see what the powers are in our world. Uh, my family, uh, we had that great thing that happened on Monday and Tuesday of this week. The, the skies parted and the rain stopped just for 48 hours, and family day fell on there. So we went for a family walk, and I thought I would do some sermon research on family day. So as we're walking, I'm saying, so, Caleb, Noah, hon, what, what do you guys think are the powers in our day? What are those? You know, I explained this passage and asked for their input, and then they came up with the, you know, the, the easy three, I'd call it. What, what do you think those are? Money, sex, and power. Those are, the, those are probably the big three. Right, money, sex, and power. But there's also deception and accusation and, and division and, and destruction. And don't we all experience those powers at work in our lives and in our world? Back to money as an example, it's something that we deal with every single day. I mean, money, mammon, this God that Jesus called it. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or he says, you will be devoted to the one and, and despise the other. He says, you cannot love God and money. He, he, and I think a lot of us don't quite believe that, and we're try, out to prove Jesus wrong. Money. Mammon, you know. We're talking uh, coins and, and bills, you know, metal and, and paper, uh, debit cards and credit cards, uh, just plastic, right? Um, uh, banks and investments and financial systems and, and tellers and, and bankers who are just trying to make a living. But there can also be this spiritual dynamic to all of these things. Money is a, a real force. It is a real power. And it wants to be a God in our lives. It wants to be Lord of our lives. It, it wants us to put our trust in it, uh, to put our hope in it. And it wants to hold us captive. Um, I got this uh, email from my uh, sister-in-law a, a couple of months ago. She was reading a book, and she came across a quote that she thought was worthy to pass on to the preacher of the family. And so she gave me this quote she came across in a novel. It said, said this, Lynn reflected how much power mere money had. Lying in the purse, it was just coins. Let loose from confinement, it was blankets against the cold and candied chestnuts. Money is one of the powers. And, and, and this, by the way, is why Jesus talked about money so much. It, if you were to take away uh, all of Jesus' references to money, you would actually edit out about a third of what he said. Mammon or money is not a neutral player in our lives or in our world. It's a power. And we could go on and give example after example of what some of the powers are in our day. And Paul says, I pray that your eyes will be enlightened so that you will know that Jesus has defeated these powers and that he's setting people free, captives free from those powers. Those powers that did what? They actually crucified Jesus. We know that there were powers at work, uh, likely demonic some, but, but they were working through human beings too. I mean, the, the priests and the religious structure of that day and, and, and the, the Roman Empire... They crucified Jesus. But here's the, the big deal here is that Jesus won through losing. I mean, it looked like he lost everything. And in, in, 
in that moment of giving up his life on the cross, he, he won the most decisive victory over all the powers ever. That's the good news that Paul wants us to know. It, it, it's not always obvious. And that's why he prays, help us to realize and know Christ's victories over the power. So, um, question for you. What do we do with this? How do we not just be spectators of Jesus' victory? How do we participate with his victory over the powers? And as a friend of mine said, uh, we seek to cooperate with Christ's victory over the powers. I like, I like how he put that. And how do we do that? How do we cooperate with this incredibly good news? How do we liberate ourselves from the powers in the world and cooperate with Christ's victory over those powers? For one, and, and this won't be news for those of you who are here Wednesday, it, it's, it's not rocket science. We live in the book. We live in the book that declares the victory. You know, we, we need to locate ourselves in, in that defining story. This is the defining story is, is Jesus and the gospel and all that it was accomplished from cover to cover in, in the book that defines all books, the biblical story. And here's the thing, if we only read the newspaper or the sports page or our, our Twitter feed or whatever it may be, if that's our only diet, if, if we're only picking through, you know, decorating magazines and fashion magazines, we won't have a clue of what really is going on in our world. And so we've got to learn, we've got to cultivate habits of soaking ourselves in the book, the book that opens up the mystery of the good news. And as we also said, we need to live in community. We cannot do this alone. We have to live in community with other believers who are also trying to live in light of the gospel. Kind of 80 minutes on a Sunday morning just doesn't quite cut it. I mean, uh, some of you don't even make it every Sunday. And so you're kind of living on, I would say, crumbs. It's, it's, it's a secondhand spirituality. And we need to, to continue to cultivate this supportive friendship of, of believers who are going in the same direction and reminding ourselves Sunday after Sunday and in our small groups and when we connect with one another that it's worth it, that the gospel makes sense. It's worth pursuing. Um, I like how Dave described this. He said, in a highly sexualized culture, which we are in a highly, highly sexualized culture, he said, he asked the question, he says, what's missing? He said, friendship, <laughs> like genuine intimacy, might be a lot of sex going on, but is there, is there friendship? Is there, is there intimacy going on? What are we really longing for? And so we get into small groups to, to cultivate that, and, and we become a, a band of brothers, in a sense, and sisters who are kind of in the foxholes of this world trying to, to stay in the game. Very much in light of that, in line of that, we cooperate with the victory by treating other people in light of the victory. We've refused to gossip we refuse to accuse. We refuse to speak badly of anyone for whom Jesus died. Um, I've shared this with some of you before, but I remember a few years ago, uh, I had a, like a bell go off just when I was thinking about life one day, and I recognized as I was considering one relationship I had, I, I, I came to understand that I felt quite bitter towards this person. I was actually holding a grudge. And as a follower of Jesus, it's helpful when something like that happens. It's easy to be blind to those things. Like, I, I think I just had been going on. But when I look back, I had held a grudge against this person for a number of years, actually, walking around with this thing. But once, it, it's like once the genie was out of the bottle, I realized I got to do something with this. And so I prayed, and I forgave that person and went through that process. But 
uh, I did something I'd never done before, but I uh, have done lots since, is after forgiving that person, I made a commitment to speak no ill of that person from then on. And, and you realize when you actually are bitter or have a grudge towards someone or you're jealous of somebody, what do you tend to do with your mouth? <laughs> you tend to do all those things, gossip, slander, you know, accuse, all those kind of things. And, and I, I chose a discipline of not speaking ill of that person anymore. And, and you know what happened? It's like the kingdom of God broke out in that relationship in all kinds of wonderful ways. And, and, and I went from being estranged to being friends. Remarkable what God can do as we, out of his good news, follow the good advice. We, we are cooperating with Jesus' victory over the powers when we're careful with how we treat other people. Um, we cooperate with the victory by sharing our money. You see, money, mammon, wants to keep us enslaved. Money wants us to keep our money. Mammon wants to do that. It wants us to think that, that our money is our money. But it's not. It's his. You know, especially the first 10%, that's his. And so when we give, especially when we tithe, we break the spell. We, we kind of break the enchantment of, that money holds on our souls, which is why the offering time in our service is meant to be kind of a high point of our worship time. It's meant to be a, a point where, yes, we're giving thanks, but it's a moment of worship where we are also declaring that Jesus is Lord over money. I wonder, um, many of us, we're, we're moving away from cash and check and so forth, so more and more people are, are giving online or giving pre-authorized checking and those kind of things. But I wonder if we lose something in that, because, I mean, that's how we do most of our giving. And so we're just on Sunday morning, we're passing by the bag. And I, I kind of wonder as a discipline whether all of us should, like, bring toonies and loonies to church on Sunday just so we can put something in the bag so in that moment of worship we can say, Jesus is Lord over my money. I think it would be a good thing. Let's do it. Let's have another offering right now. Sorry, I'm just getting captured by this idea. Wouldn't be a bad thing. But money, you know, I love, by the way, how they do offerings in Africa. In the times that I've been there, I've seen, seen offerings done a number of different ways. Um, a couple of things I really love about how they do offerings is there's a defiance about when they give the offering. Not when they take the offering. The ushers aren't like, you know, it's not like that. But they're defiant as they're giving. It's like, take it. That's, you know, they're, they're, they're like, that's not Lord over me is what they're saying. In some churches, they actually come to, the, they, they dance their way to the front and they put, it, they put their offering on the ground and then they dance on their money. I think we should do that at Hillside too. That's another repeatable practice. Love it. I mean, but they're saying, they're saying in those moments as they're dancing, I, I think that's so great. You're not Lord over me. He is. And we cooperate with the victory by praying. We follow the Apostle Paul's lead. You remember that, that quote maybe a few Sundays ago? I, I said, to fail to pray is not to merely break some religious rule. It is failure to treat God as God. It's really to ignore the fact that Jesus has won victory over, and is over all of the powers and authorities and, and dominion in our world. Timothy Keller says that prayer is rebellion against the status quo of our world. To pray is really kind of a rebellion 
against the powers. But I think it's actually much more than that. To pray is cooperating with the victory that Jesus had over the powers. So we pray. And we cooperate with the victory of Jesus uh, by, by eating the meal. We do that uh, about once a month here at Hillside. But that Lord's Supper, a profoundly transforming act, it, it's in the Lord's Supper where we declare that he who was crucified is alive and he's coming again. And even now, he is seated on the throne. Amen? Let's, uh, let's bow, bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Oh, God, Lord God, open our eyes this morning, we pray. Enlighten our hearts that we might see and know this incomparable power for us who believe. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave, that broke the bonds of death, and then went on to exalt him to the place of highest honor, highest glory, highest praise. Today, Jesus, we acknowledge you as our king. We acknowledge your victory over all powers. And we acknowledge that, that you are on the throne, high above every power and rule and authority and dominion. All things are under your feet. Today, Jesus, we acknowledge you as Lord over our lives, over our church, over our city, over our country, over our world. Teach us, uh, we pray, to cooperate with your victory over the powers. Forgive us when we have been content to sit on the sidelines and watch you do everything and not to join you. Help us, uh, each of us, that we might take appropriate steps to join you in that victory. And Lord... Help us to see the vast and incomparable resources that we have in Jesus, that we might so press into your good news that we would find freedom to follow your good advice. And finally, Jesus, may you become more and more and more the defining story of our lives, that our lives would be shaped by the good news and the gospel of Jesus and your victory. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.